In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. Episode 3, African Border Crossings. I went over to France and picked up the car and did all the paperwork, took it back to England. And of course, there I was, arriving in my village in Sussex in this brand new Peugeot 504 saloon car when everybody thought that I was supposed to, supposed to be in Afghanistan on a motorcycle. And then I, I, I drove the car all the way out to Afghanistan. And by that time, because people generally, when they were in Afghanistan, worked on a two-year contract, when it came to my leaving, there were very few people there who were there when I arrived. So I said, right, well, that's it, you know, farewell party. I'm going on my motorbike and going down to India which is what I thought I was going to be doing rather a long time ago. And people said, on a motorbike? Where did you get the motorbike from? So I said, oh, I've had the motorbike. I, I came out here on a motorbike. Oh, didn't know that. So I said, yes, yes. So big farewell party and off I went. And eventually I got down to India, to Bombay. Uh, and I have to say, it was, it was, it really was quite an experience that it had taken me three years to get to Bombay, but just that part of the world trip was an experience on its own. The fact that I had had all these jobs that I never ever envisaged, the fact that they were so interesting, I met so many different people. And of course, now I saw Afghanistan as it once was, which very, very few people, because it was 50 years ago, very, very few people know what it was like before the Taliban, before the Russians moved in. Um, there was a royal family. And in fact, uh, I was given the royal command to go and give English lessons to one of the princesses. And it just made me roar with laughter. I thought, honest to God, I arrived out here <laughs> as an English girl on a motorcycle and here I am going into the palace to give English lessons to one of the princesses. Um, that, that obviously was, was quite an experience. Um, anyway, I got to Bombay and I decided uh, that because I had saved so much money in my American bank account, I could go anywhere. The world was my oyster. So I thought, right, well, I'm not going to do what everybody else does, cross India, go down to Madras, go across to Penang in, in uh, Malaysia, go down to Singapore, go through Indonesia, possibly go to Darwin, but anyway, at least get down to Australia. And I did have a brother in New Zealand, but I certainly never envisaged ever getting to him. So I decided I was going to go to East Africa. And I took a ship from Bombay to East Africa, uh, stopping at the Seychelles on the way. And then I went on the bike all over East Africa, um, staying with 
I had introductions to various people who lived on farms who had been there for many, many years and had seen Mau Mau atrocities and things like that, which was not good. Um, by the time I got to Uganda, President Armin had booted out a booty and he'd been in power, Armin had been in power for about a month or so. And people were in, in Kenya were saying, for God's sake, don't go to Uganda. You're white, he's chucking everybody, all foreigners out, and you'll be shot probably. And being a female on your own, goodness knows what could happen to you. Um, and I said, oh, no, 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 I don't think things like that really happen. Um, I had great trust in, in, in human beings, and I hadn't had any problems really. Um, so off I trotted, I went round Kenya, I went into Tanzania, and out of the whole trip, eventually, I had two flat tires. I had more speedometers on my motorbike than flat tires, because as BSA said, Mary, your bike wasn't expected to go over the roads that you have been over. And I kept writing, when I was in Afghanistan, I kept writing back and saying, can I have another speedometer? So they'd send a new speedometer out. And in the end, they said, forget it, just leave it, you know, tough. Um, and I was in going through a game park in Tanzania. And normally you weren't allowed in a game park on a motorbike, but because this was the main road, <laughs> it was a track, cinder track, uh, I was allowed. And suddenly the bike started swerving and I thought, I don't believe it, I got a flat tire. Oh, I knew how to fix it, but I couldn't do it by myself. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I was out in the middle where, in fact, what had happened was, I think just before I got to where I stopped with the flat tire, a huge herd of elephants had gone right the way across the road. Uh, but hopefully I would have stepped back and I don't think actually I don't think animals really do anything either they are hungry in which case yes they will attack you if they're not hungry they won't attack you um, and elephants they're not there to, to hurt you if you happen to get in their path well it is unfortunate because they've got rather large feet but it's one of those things anyway along came a car with Indians in and I had been in a women's magazine in Kenya I think and they knew who I was so they took my luggage and they took me and we went down to a police post and they left me and I went up the steps to this big wooden hut to the, uh, the chief uh, officer and I said I've got a flat tire on my motorbike it's back in the game park um, you've got a Land Rover out there is there any chance that somebody could go out and pick it up and he said, no, we don't run a breakdown service here. You'll have to go to the farm at the back and ask them to deal with it. So I said, okay, fine. So I went out and I sat on the steps and I burst into tears. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do because I was tired. Um, I had a clue because it really was, well, it was certainly the first time I'd ever had a flat tire. Um, and I knew how to fix it, but I, I couldn't do it by myself. Absolutely crazy. Um, and suddenly I found somebody sitting next door to me with his arm around my shoulder saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I'll send my men out to get the bike. So I said, but you just told me you didn't run a breakdown service. And he said, that was before I realized that you were a young lady. <laughs> so the price of being a female on your own. Um, and so 
the next day, I think I slept in a police cell, if I remember rightly. <laughs> the only time I've ever done it. And then the next day, uh, the bike was taken to a sizal farm owned by a Greek. And the, 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 the mechanics there took the wheel off the bike under my instructions. I couldn't believe I knew what I was doing. Um, and then they, I, had an inner, I had two inner tubes with me inside my saddlebags. Um, and so they put a new inner tube in and they put the wheel back onto the tire the, the back onto the wheel. But they didn't do it properly because I had been taught by BSA when I went to visit them that it had to be even all the way round. And it wasn't even all the way round. So I explained this to these men, Africans, on the sizal farm in their workshop. And they just looked at me as more or less to say, what do you know about it? So I said, no, that it has to be even all the way round. You see, there's a little line there, rubber line on the tire, and it has to be even all the way round with the rim. So they said, oh. So I said, right. So I picked it up and I thumped and thumped and thumped it because I'd read somewhere that that's how you did it, to get it even. And it worked. And I thought I was the bee's knees. Oh, goodness gracious me. <laughs> and the first time I really had a big, big problem mechanically and I knew what to do. Oh, no, 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 that, that def definitely a red letter day there. Uh, and then on I trotted and that was, was it Kenya, Tanzania, then uh, back through Tanzania to Uganda. I didn't have any problems going out of Kenya into Uganda with uh, President Armin in, in power. Yes, he was disposing of all of President Aboti's people, but unfortunately, that's what happens, and the losing people lose. Uh, and yeah, we did hear shots being fired, uh, because by this stage, I think in Kampala, where I stayed with somebody I'd met who'd been passing through Afghanistan, um, there was another, I think there was, a, there was a boy who was on the ship coming from Bombay, and he had also come to stay there. Uh, and so he and I, he had some Indian friends, and we went out for a few days, I think, to Murchison Falls. And I was a bit worried that we might be stopped, especially as they were Indian. Um, and the idea was that all foreigners were being thrown out of Uganda. Um, but no, we didn't have any problems. And then uh, I was going down through Africa. Um, and I suppose afterwards, in retrospect, I came to the conclusion that if I had disappeared off the road for two or three days, people would have been wondering where I was because I got to a cafe for a coffee stop and an Indian chap came up to me and he said, hello, how are you getting on? So I said, fine, thank you. He said, my brother saw you three days ago. He had coffee with you in such and such a village. And I said, oh, he said, yes, yes. He got hold of me and he said, there is this English girl and she's coming down on a BSA Bantam. Watch out for her. So he said, I've been looking for you because there was basically only one road going south. Um, and it, it made me feel quite secure. It probably was not the right idea at all, but it did make me feel secure. And then I went on down through, well, Burundi and Rwanda, you sort of went into one and out of the other and in and out, in and out. I don't know how many, I don't know whether I had multiple visas for it, but nobody seemed to worry about it. And I got to one immigration post and there was a man sitting in a sort of little, looked a bit like a confessional. Um, 
And I arrived and there was nobody else around and I produced my passport and he said, Bonjour mon père. And I looked around, there wasn't anybody there. And I, he said, Bonjour mon père. And I thought, well, I suppose he's saying a few things up there. It's, it's time for morning prayer. Good morning, my father. And then I looked around again and I thought, oh my God, he thinks I'm a missionary. Because there were a group of what were called the White Fathers, and they were probably French or Belgian missionaries uh, who rode around on med bikes. So there I was being mistaken for a missionary. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, never mind, never mind. And then I went down on a ghastly little boat. What was the name of the, the boat that Humphrey Bogart was on with, what was her name? Catherine, he Catherine, Catherine Hepburn. Uh? The Africa Queen. Yeah. Well, this rusting tub that I went on on Lake Kivu was something else. The captain was black, Belgian Congolese, and I was the only white person. And I don't know. No, obviously I didn't have a. Obviously there were no cabins. And we stopped at an island for the night. And he said, "Come into my the captain's deck." And he said, "I'm going to lock you in." He said, "You don't come out." And it was all glass, glass windows. He said, "Don't come up above the level of the windows." And during the night, on the land. They were all dancing around, and it was very, very <laughs> basic. And I should think they were all absolutely drinking whatever they made. They're, they're hooch, and I would think they were all pretty high, intoxicated. And of course, I wanted to go to the lab, <laughs> and I couldn't because I was locked in. Uh, which sounds quite dangerous, I suppose, but I, was, I think I was the only person left on, on this, this rusting tub. Anyway, eventually in the morning, the captain came back and he said, are you okay? So I said, yes, I've got to, got to go to the lab. Um, but he was very, very nice, obviously, because he realised that if I had gone ashore, there probably would have been mayhem. Uh, and then uh, we sailed on down Lake Kivu and we stopped at a jetty and... A missionary got on and he was again I don't know whether he was French or Belgian but he, sp he spoke French and by this time the captain had produced a chair for me to sit on and I was busy sitting on this chair watching everybody come aboard and the missionary came on and he came up and he said to me um, off the chair I'll have it and I said oh and then I thought he thinks I'm a young man and he is entitled to the chair. So I thought, oh, I'll give him the chair. And I remember thinking, if that's how he treats a young white person, how does he treat a member of his congregation who is black? Uh, and I'm not religious, and I don't believe in missionaries going around showing other, telling other people how to live. Uh, some of them all have a, a history going back hundreds, thousands of years. And if they want to worship somebody who's a sun god or a water god, that's their business. And I don't think anybody else has the right to come and force 
their beliefs on somebody else. But that's, that's me. That's me, I'm afraid. I've seen a lot of harm done around the world. Uh, anyway, the captain came out and saw the missionary sitting on the chair and I was sitting on the deck. And he said, what are you doing sitting on the deck? I said, shh, shh, keep quiet, keep quiet. Shush, shush, just leave it, just leave it. And so then the missionary eventually got off and I said to the captain, well, he obviously thought that I was a young man. So it showed how unobservant the missionary was, in fact. Um, and then I got on the land again and then I went, then I had to get on another, another rotting, rotting hulk. And I went down Lake Tanganyika. I think it was, yeah. And I went to Kigoma, which is on the west coast of that lake. And that was the Belgian Congo. And in those days, it was the Belgian Congo. And I was in, I was down on the lowest deck, absolutely. And it looked like one of those slave ships that you see in those Amer Amer where slaves were taken from Africa to, to America. Um, there was a, a sheet of metal and it was suspended by chains from the roof. And this was my bed and it creaked. Oh, it was awful. Really horrible. I had my sleeping bag, but it really was horrible. And the women down there used to protect me from the men who had got really high on drink. They would protect me from the men who were coming round, which was very, very nice of them. I don't think I got a lot of sleep. And then eventually, um, when we got to Kigoma, where I was going to get off, suddenly there appeared some white people who'd been on, on, on the ferry and they wanted to know where I'd been. So I said, oh, down below, I've, I've been here ever since it left wherever I had left. And they said, oh, you shouldn't have been down there. So I said, so, that's what I paid for. Anyway, we got on land and I can remember very tall, uh, very smart looking, now I think he was a Congolese, Belgian Congolese, probably mixed race, because he was quite pale skinned. He came and he said, where are you going? So I said, I'm going down to Zambia. So I said, how? So I said, on my motorbike, that's what I've got here. You can't go down on the road to Zambia. So I said, there's a road, why can't I? He said, because you will be going through hill country. And I have to say, there are people living there who don't realize that we are no longer shooting Belgians. So I said, oh. And he said, it will not be safe. And I have the authority to stop you from riding on the road. So you will go on the train. So I said, I haven't got the money for the train. He said, don't worry about that. He said, you pay third class and we'll put you in a first class compartment. So that's exactly what they did. And it was uh, very comfortable. And I shared my compartment with a young Congolese girl who was married to a Belgian. And the ticket man came along and looked at her ticket and then he looked at mine and she saw that I had a third class ticket. It must have been a different colour. And she said, what are you doing here? So I said, what do you mean? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, she said, you shouldn't be in here. And the ticket man said, uh, no, she, she's allowed to be here. Yes, but I've got a first class ticket and she's got a third class ticket. She should not be in here. So for about 24 hours, this snotty little number wouldn't talk to me. And then eventually, I, I don't know, I, 
I must have said something to her to break the ice and she ended up being very, very friendly. Uh, but she obviously was throwing a status around <laughs> because she was married to a white Belgian, which I thought was very amusing, very sweet, very sweet indeed. And then I got off the train and went into, uh, went into the town, found a guest house, and little man opened the door and I said, have you got a room available? Yes, come in quickly, quickly, quickly. It was dark. So he said, bring your bike, bring your bike, put the bike in the corridor. So I put the bike in the corridor and then he showed me my room and I said, right, now then, can you recommend a cafe where I can get some food? And he said, you're not going outside, not in the dark. So I said, why not? So he turned the light off in the room and he pulled the curtains and there were three Congolese soldiers going down the road, armed. And he said, that's why you are not going out. As a white female, uh, he said, I wouldn't want to know what might happen to you. So I said, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. So he went off and got me some food. And then the next day, um, off I trotted. And it was the road out uh, to the Zambian border. And it had been shelled. And there'd obviously been a hell of a lot of fighting. And they'd probably tried to blow up the whole road to stop people from going out that way when, when the Belgians, I guess, were probably running away. Um, and so there were these huge craters in the road. But on a motorcycle, I just slowly went along and then I went down in the dip and up the other side. And along behind me came a Mercedes with a white Belgian driving it. And he would shoot past me on the smooth bits of road. But when he got to the craters, of course, he couldn't. I and mean, he couldn't even go around the side because of the undergrowth. So he would slowly go down through the crater and then up the other side, by which time, of course, I'd overtaken him and I was way down. And then he'd catch up with me. So we were playing this sort of cat and dog game. Um, and again, he obviously thought I was a young man. And we got down to the border and he was ahead of me checking, checking out of the country. And uh, he stood there as I arrived. And he said, oh, so you made it? So I said, yes, and so did you. And he didn't realise I was going to, oh, because I had Union Jacks all over me, so I was English. Uh, he obviously didn't think that I was going to speak French. And he was speaking in French to the border chap, which I understood. And he wasn't being very complimentary at all. Um, and then I went into, into the Zambian side and I had to fill out a form and it wanted to know how much money I had with me. So I wrote down 2,000 US dollars, traverse checks, and gave him back the form. And by this time, the Belgian, the Belgian, the, the white Belgian was there as well. And he had a big smirk on his face. And this uh, passport man said, or immigration officer, whatever he was, said, I want to see the $2,000. So I said, yes. Okay, fine. So I went to sit down and he thought I was going out to my motorbike. He said, you're not going out anywhere. So I said, no, you want to see the traveller's checks. I said, I've got to find them. And it, I mean, they were in $10 bills. So there was a watch this thick. And I got them. When I, when I knew I probably would have to produce them, I had them in my shoes, I had them in my bra, I had them in pockets, I had them all over the place. So I collected them all up with this smirking Belgian standing there. And I slammed them down on the desk and I said, $2,000. So little man sat down. He got a gun, got my passport too, sat down and he started counting. Well, after he'd done 10, that was $100. So 
So he pushed them back to me, said, no, that's okay. So I said, no. By which time the Belgian decided it was time to go. So he disappeared off. And I said to this little man, no, you sit there and you count them because you didn't believe me. And I really was chancing my arm. I, mean, I, I did think at the time it was rather stupid, <laughs> but I just, I just felt in that sort of a mood. Uh, so he, he, he went through and he said, no, no, that'll be all right. I said, no, 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 excuse me. You didn't believe me that I had 2000 US dollars. So now you prove that I am right, okay? So he had to count all of them. I was absolutely, I don't know whether it was because he was a little man, maybe he had a bossy wife. <laughs> he was scared of her, I don't know. But he counted 2,000 US dollars and then he gave them back to me. So I said, thank you very much indeed. That's very kind of you. I'm so pleased that you did believe me. And then off I trotted. Um, I think really that was, mm, yes, I think that was one of the trickiest borders I might have crossed. Yeah, the only time I ever bribed anybody was when I was coming back over the Mekong, but that's later on. The Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Listen to episode four now. <laughs>